Hi, you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Risk, resilience, and responsiveness. Coming right up. Two very interesting parts to today's program. The first is a discussion of risk, resilience, and responsiveness. And the second is related, because that too is about risk. And it's about getting to the future. And it's the risk of assuming that sources of green, clean energy in terms of the CO2 emissions and other toxic particles that may be present are eliminated completely. And if we go back to the mining extraction at the start of that particular supply chain to create the new technologies and the battery technologies that are needed for clean green energy, then that isn't a particularly clean business. And so we're going to talk about that too. Risk, resilience and responsiveness. Three very important constructs for supply chain strategies. Risk is about looking at disruptions and assigning probabilities to disruptions. Resilience is about the ability to bounce back and overcome disruptions. And responsiveness is about meeting customer requirements in the process of organizing supply chain strategies. And they're related, as you will see. You have to balance risk. You have to make the supply chains resilient. And of course, you have to be responsive to customer needs. Risk is something that has to be measured in terms of probabilities, but you've got to identify what the threats are in the first place and stop those disruptions. Resilience is something you have to build in a variety of ways. And responsiveness is about meeting the customer need. Resilience is more than risk management. Resilience is a capability to get to the future by limiting the impact of disruption. Risk management is necessary to manage particular supply chains, as well as the supply chain system, so the whole system. There are systemic risks and specific risks, in particular supply chains. Anticipating risk from disruption is an important skill. It has to be learned and developed. Assessing risk through experience and through environmental scanning. Assessing risk, we assign probabilities to manage the risk. And that's a key part of any risk management system. Beyond the immediate supply chain risk, there are risks that threaten the total supply system. It's necessary to take a system's view of the risk if you want to build resilience across the total system. An example would be energy and energy supply chains. These are made up of entity supply chains with extractors, refiners, generating companies linked to buying organizations, the resellers, business and consumer suppliers, which are linked to business supply chains and consumers at the end of the chain. The total supply system would consider risk at each node from source to consumption. This means not simply managing risk in the organization's supply chain, it means managing risk in the whole system, which has many supply chains 
as part of it. Resilience requires steps to manage beyond the immediate supply chain, beyond the intra- and inter-organisational supply chains, which are linked within a total system. Resilience capabilities have to be developed to manage systemic risk, and for each organisation or each entity in the total system, they also have to manage their own risks for particular supply chains that they are responsible for. Albert Einstein said, we can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it. And that's very true. We have to think differently about risk and about resolving the risk, managing that risk, creating the future without disruption. John Maynard Keynes noted, markets do not always work as expected. And when this happens, it may be necessary for government to intervene to correct the problem. Governments have a responsibility to secure strategic assets. Strategic assets are those few assets that need careful attention. Energy, food, water, public utilities, banks, defence and other strategic resources necessary for the existence of human life and human activity in the state. These are the resources needed to maintain life and provide security for the whole population. Jürgen and Stanislaw refer to these resources as the commanding heights of the economy, a phrase that Lenin used based on the works of Karl Marx. Resilience is the ability to bounce back from disruptions. In supply chains, one thing is certain. At some point, there will be disruption. Something that knocks your plans off track. Those that plan often make plans resilient by adopting what-if strategies. Looking at what would happen if a particular event or series of events occurred. This means having plans to get back on track quickly when the unexpected happens. Resilience is tested when goods being shipped in containers are held up or when there is a labour strike at a port or supplier production unit. It can be beyond supply disruption, which is a symptom, not a cause of something that's much bigger. For example, when a pandemic grips the world, this is systemic disruption. What makes for resilience in these circumstances is having the capacity to bounce back quickly. Capacity which has been built through planning and investment to ensure it's present when needed. Securing strategic assets must be part of resilience. If we think about the needs of a nation-state, we could produce a list, as I've said, which would include energy, food, defence, healthcare, materials and technology, amongst other things. We expect governments to secure strategic assets. It's their role. One of the problems for some nation-states is short-termism. In democratic states, governments are elected for four- or five-year terms. It's a relatively short time when you need to plan for the longer term. And commitments follow suit. Governments are reluctant to commit to long-term projects sometimes because they only have a short-term horizon. The long view has been something that Eastern countries such as China and Japan have been admired for. They take the long view and they're prepared to make the long-term commitments. Without such long-term views, it's difficult to develop continuity for resilience. In my discussion of the West's dependency on China, I drew attention to the long-term planning to acquire rare earth minerals and strategic metals for battery technology. China has built resilience and continues to do so. One of the major 
The initiatives was the Belt and Road Initiative, which tries to create new links across the old Silk Road to strengthen the resource base for China. Western economies have been wedded to the market to solve their problems. By this, I mean they see the price mechanism as a way to fix disruption rather than build capacity through investment to achieve it. In essence, you assess and balance risk through markets using this approach. And this will become clearer as I discuss risk. Risk is managed through probabilities. It's a first step to map risk that may disrupt supply chains. Time is an important element of the assessment. What is the likelihood of something happening and how long will it last? It's a key question. This is more than probability. It's impact too, measured through time. An example such as the ever-given container vessel, which held traffic in the Suez Canal up, demonstrates both. If we were assessing the risk prior to the occurrence, the probability statistic might have been close to zero, since in the Suez Canal's history, which is over 100 years, past data would reveal no such event had ever occurred. So past data wouldn't be much use in predicting the risk. The impact, of course was more than seven days the ship was stuck. It took months for the ships and container traffic to bounce back to something near normal throughput. So how do you plan resilient strategies for unlikely but possible events? Those events that people refer to as black swan moments. Remember the black swan? It was about an idea that all swans are white. And everybody in Europe thought that that was the case. Until, of course, a British captain sailed along the coast of Australia and found that there were black swans. And that place is known as the Swan River. If you do not want to overinvest in capacity, you have to be agile. Agility depends on thoughts and action. Firstly, you must anticipate such an event. Secondly, you have to think through scenarios and cost the options. Thirdly, make the decision. Necessary but not easy because resilience costs, but it will cost less if you anticipate and plan agile strategies. In supply chains, there are many risks, which I summarized in my 7V framework, based on more than 20 years researching supply chain risk across lots of different industrial sectors. The factors that create value are also those factors that carry risk. Volatility, volume, velocity, visibility, variability, virtuality and variety are the seven risk factors. The profile of risk is not the same for every organisation or for every nation, but the factors most definitely are. The question for organisations to address, and indeed for nations, is to identify how each of the factors contributes to that particular organization's mix profile. Of course, even inside organizations, there will be different supply chains that are affected differently by each of the mix elements. A simple example might make this clear. Supposing we operate a supply chain that has regular demand patterns that lead to constant reorder patterns from a consistent supply base. Sounds easy, doesn't it? This type of supply chain should not be affected by volume risk or variability. Whereas, if we take a supply chain where volumes are less predictable and sources of supply are more volatile, that will have a very different risk profile. Resilient strategies require investment in resources to build it, to build that resilience. 
Examples might include people, training, technology, systems, sourcing, procurement operations, warehousing, and distribution. Each element forms part of the mix. Resilience extends beyond a single supply chain, which means investment in the network is necessary. Supply chains have to be thought of as service systems satisfying customers if we want to build resilience. And those customers are not just paying customers in the normal sense, but they could be citizens of the nation state who pay their taxes. Analyzing systemic risk requires constant scanning for threats. In the process of doing so, we may also find opportunities to enhance the system capabilities, which will increase resilience. A similar process can be implemented at organizational level or for a specific product supply chain with the aim of building resilience. So, to conclude, resilience is more important in any system. In supply chain systems, it's paramount. Supply systems exist beyond immediate firm and inter-firm supply chains. Risk has to be anticipated, assessed, and probable outcomes assigned to manage the risk for the system. Within the system, organizations are responsible for managing their own intra- and inter-organization supply chains. And the network structures have to be resilient. Agile strategies can be employed by firms inside their own supply networks. Responsiveness is an important capability to build so that you can become responsive to customers and be aware and strengthen resilience so that you're not impacted by disruption. Resilience goes beyond agility and responsiveness by allocating resources to the total supply chain system proportionate to risks identified in that system. Some of the biggest risks in supply chains are to do with financial risk. And the financial risk is often incurred on procurement, on the sourcing area where you source from, because you've got exchange rates that become involved in the financial transaction. And sometimes exchange rates can be less predictable, depending on the country you're dealing with. And then, of course, there's the security of transactions, And there's also the issue of various taxes that have to be paid. So we discussed in the previous episode about cost insurance freight or free on board. And those different types of transactions are all tricky. Of course, if you use third party or fourth party logistics providers, 3PL, 4PL, then those things will probably be taken care of by the company you employ but you still have to be aware of the risk. Welcome to Westworld. Now, I'm sure you've seen that program on television or perhaps seen a film where it creates a fantasy world in which people can spend their leisure pretending to be cowboys. Well, welcome back to the real world. Today, we're going to discuss some of the fantasies of contemporary business. And I say this partly tongue-in-cheek and partly seriously. Because I read all the time about artificial intelligence and how that's going to change the world. And yes, it will, and it does. And I read all the time about the Internet of Things and how that's changing the world. And Industry 4. Well, that's how things could be, might be, maybe. But also think about this. How far have we really come from the Industrial Revolution? 
when we spend time mining for coal, generating steam power, building engines that were driven on fossil fuel, either up by rail, by ship, the oil economy, and all the oil that went into transportation, be they road vehicles, ships, planes, and of course, all the transportation of goods that happens using fossil fuel. Now, what's interesting as you think about this supply chain, as it was, as it is, and as it will be, is that there is change, but in parts of the supply chain, it's slow. And so the changing nature of transportation in shipping is very slow. In aircraft, it's a bit faster, but it's still slow. In road transport, if we think about the production that a company like Toyota, with its 11 million vehicles produced, currently we have about the same number of vehicles, which are electric vehicles, throughout the world. So if you think about those differences and those things that remain the same, the drive towards the new world, the West world that's envisaged with artificial intelligence industry for electric vehicles and so on, that world is still quite a way off. But it's a world we need to get to when we think about protection of resources on the planet. And I've talked about that quite a few times over various episodes of the Chain Reaction podcast. But what's really interesting, I think, is that production methods, if we think about extraction, we still have a mining industry, not for coal in the sense that it was during the Industrial Revolution, not for power in that sense, although there is still a lot of coal mining that goes on throughout the world, and the coal economy is very important to particular countries around the world. And we shouldn't forget that. Lots of countries still sit over lots of coal, which could be used to power machines. And lots of countries still do power lots of industry using coal. We consume lots of oil, same reason. But when we think about the change to the cleaner economy, as we call it, the clean green economy, then that's a dirty business too, because we still have to mine for lithium, cobalt, nickel, and various rare earth metals. And the people who do the mining and the extraction of those materials generally live where those resources are found. And they're generally people on very low subsistence wages. So the green economy is being powered by cheap labor and it's being powered by some child labor in some countries. And it's being powered by poor people who work in those mining occupations in the worst of conditions, just as bad as any coal mine, if not worse. So when we talk about green, clean, electronic futures, and we think about how they might be, and the battery technology that we have, we still have to find ways to make the whole process in the supply chain clean and green, which it most certainly isn't at present. Henry Sanderson was a journalist who worked for the Financial Times. And he's written a book published by Simon and Schuster called Volt Rush, which explains the winners and losers in the race to go green. And Sanderson says that the transition will not just be economic, it will be environmental. Extracting and processing these minerals requires large amounts of energy and pollutes local ecosystems. The fact is often hidden, Sanderson says, in the debates about a transition to renewable energy and electric cars. Every product we use has contributed to global emissions. And it's something that I discussed in the 
episode on the embedded economy. And you might want to go and take a listen to that because I was discussing similar things in that particular episode about how everything we have, everything we produce, everything that gets supplied contains within it emissions. The question is, which are the least polluting items we produce and are the ways to actually make things that currently consist of those goods with high amounts of CO2 emissions embedded in the resource, which could be produced differently or shipped differently, transported differently, to lower the embedded resource cost. And I think that's an important discussion to be had. But I think in all the glitz and gloss of racing towards electric cars and electric transport and everything being electric, people have forgotten some of the real issues that need to be tackled and discussed in the open rather than simply brushed under the table or forgotten about as if they are not a problem because they most certainly are problems. When it comes to risk, countries won't solve their energy problems simply by looking at the probabilities, but they will solve them if they reduce and spread those probabilities across a variety of sources. It doesn't make sense to have all your eggs in one basket, as we know. And Europe's been rather remiss, assuming it can purchase cheap energy from Russia endlessly, especially with the geopolitics involved. So it's time to wise up. It's time to spread the risk. It's time to get rid of rogue suppliers. And it's time to focus attention on the future. And the future is a move to green energy. It's a move to clean energy. And it's a move that will reduce the risk of the planet, the people, and of course, profit in its broadest terms. Well, that's it for this episode of the Chain Reaction Podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed our discussion of risk, resilience, and responsiveness. And of course, what needs to happen? It's all about change, isn't it? We need to change things. We need to continuously look at what we have and think about how we can do things better in all kinds of things that we do. And that's no different whether we're an organization or a nation state. The nation states with the energy problems that are immediate and seem never-ending will resolve those problems. It will take time, but they'll get resolved because innovation is the key and the thought processes have started. And those those that think they have the upper hand will be severely disappointed when things are brought back into balance. We also have to think more clearly about the green energy revolution. And we need to ensure that by solving the output problem of emissions, we're not creating an input problem of dirty materials supplied by cheap labour. And so we need to be fair in our dealings to move to that new future. Everybody needs to play their part. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, presented, written and produced by Tony Hines.
Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now I have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.